Good morning, church. Um, I hope you're all doing well this morning. As always, it is a joy to gather with you as the people of God. Um, recently, I've been spending some time reading through the two uh, letters to the Corinthian church uh, that Paul wrote. And, and in it, especially the second letter, he spends quite a bit of time talking about how thankful he was for that church. And you could tell that he had a relationship with them. And as I was reading through it, I couldn't help but think of many of your faces. And I just want to say and echo what Kevin was saying, just even in his prayer, that I'm thankful uh, for you men and women that are part of the New Eden Church family, and I'm just thankful to be your brother, your pastor, and your friend. And so, yeah, I'm just thankful for you guys. I've been reminded of that recently. Um, if you're visiting with us today and I've not been able to meet you, uh, my name is Joel McCarty, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, uh, specifically the pastor for preaching and oversight. So that just means I get to do the bulk of, of the preaching and then also just help lead and guide our, our vision things alongside Kevin, our pastor for shepherding. And so I hope that if you're visiting with us, that you're encouraged by your time here today. And I hope that all of you are. Um, as Kevin just said, we're continuing our series through the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the entirety of chapter five. And so if you want to make your way there, we'll be using the CSB version. If you're following along with us, we'll also have it on the screen for you as we go through it. So in a moment, we're going to read through the entire narrative as we've been doing through the book of Daniel. But I wanted to point out a couple things to give us some context before we dive into the reading of the text. So first of all, one of the neat things that you'll notice about today's text is that it contains the origins for some common phrases or descriptions that we still use today in our culture. Um, it's pretty incredible the influence that the scriptures have had on societies and cultures down through the years. Some of you might have heard the phrase, the writing on the wall, right? Or you know the writing on the wall. Some of you know that? Yeah, cool. Okay. Um, it, it just means that a negative outcome is sure to happen, right? Uh, I told you guys, be prepared for youth football illustrations. But a couple weeks ago, I've talked about this like four times now, when we got beat like 48 to nothing, um, the writing was on the wall like after the first play, you know? So that would be an example of that being used. Um, I guess I'm still not over it. We did one yesterday. Uh, I yelled a lot, so we'll see how my voice holds up. Uh, but yeah, so I promise the yelling is not from the Alabama game. I did not even watch that till later. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, a another common idea from today's past is this idea of someone being so scared that they wet themselves. It's in the text, so sorry, parents. Um, you can read through it. I'm not gonna go into detail or get too graphic about that, but that is in our text today. Um, the last one of the ideas is, is your knees knocking together because they're so scared and weak from fright, right? Some of you might know this. Palms sweaty, knees weak, arms heavy. Some of y'all know that? Yeah. If you don't know those lyrics, yeah. I was going to stop there so I didn't get too graphic. If you don't know those lyrics, you can go Google it. Just be careful what else you stumble onto by that artist. Um, but yeah, just this idea of knees knocking together, right? Because someone's so scared or nervous. And so all of these cultural ideas or phrases um, either have all or some of their roots in this famous story about a king named Belshazzar from years ago, whose story we're going to explore during our time together. To give you a bit of historical context from this to read the, before we read the story, um, I do want to point out that a lot of time has passed since our story from last week in chapter four of King Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of time has passed. A lot of times because it's, you know, the chapter is right after it. We assume that it takes place right after it, but it doesn't. It's years later. Um, if you want a full estimated timeline of the book of Daniel, we do have one on our app and website. So under each of the Daniel sermons, you can click on that. But what I want to point out is that chapters five and six take place and kind of cover the very end of Belshazzar's reign and the beginning of Darius's reign, which would have been years after Nebuchadnezzar was gone and off the scene. And so as we read this story, you need to imagine Daniel at around 80 years old. 
He was most likely around 81 at this point. This old cat who's been around the block quite a while, he's seen a lot of kings come and go. He's seen a lot of things happen. Um, Probably retired, probably just kind of seemingly forgotten, living in exile, just kind of doing his thing, waiting to die and go see his, his God who he's faithfully served, right? And then he's summoned to be a part of this story today. And God's not quite done with him yet. Um, Our text also records what is a major historical event. You can go Google it, um, you can research it, but it was the fall of Babylon. um, And this took place in 589 BC. We can probably narrow this down almost to the exact day because of the big historical event that this is recording. So it takes place probably sometime in our current um, method of counting in, in the month of October. So all of this is kind of going on in this chapter we're going to read. And so now that we kind of have that context that I thought was important to set, let's read the entirety of the passage and then we'll unpack it together. So Daniel chapter five is where we're going to be. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him, I just thought of the one white as a ghost, face turned pale, thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you, that you can give interpretations and solve problems. 
Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand, but you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent this hand and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, Mini, Tikel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mini means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Pires means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. So this story, like I said, it takes place quite a while after chapter four, the events of that, but it's placed right next to it for a reason. Maybe some of you caught that. Together, these two chapters give us two drastically different pictures of kings, one who repents of his arrogance and acknowledges that God is the sovereign ruler over all kings and kingdoms, and another one who did not repent of his rebellion. The message of Daniel chapter five, even with the cursory reading, is clear. God is the one true rightful judge over all. No matter the earthly power and control that a man may appear to possess, in the presence of God, he is no more than a scared and terrified human who lacks the ability to control even his own bodily functions. This is intentionally written to almost mock this man, Belshazzar. The text is clear. God reigns. 
So today we're gonna simply walk through the text. I don't have any of the main points or anything. Um, I'm just gonna make some observations and then we're gonna see how we can find hope in the person of Christ as the one mediator who brings us into the presence of God. So our text starts by telling us that Belshazzar throws this massive party, right? All the important people, the nobles of his kingdom are invited to this party, would have taken place most likely in or around his throne room. Um, The picture we see of Belshazzar as a ruler from this text and some other historical context is kind of this younger, reckless, de facto ruler. He probably wasn't even the official king. It was kind of a de facto title that was given to him. Um, A modern day comparison might be someone who comes from a lot of money, right? Maybe had no responsibilities or hardships in their life. And so they've got this skewed view of reality and you just watch them live reckless and squander, right? All of the, the, the things they've been given. Maybe you know somebody like that, right? Most likely, Belshazzar was living under the shadow of his predecessor from years ago, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a respected king. And so he's probably constantly trying to prove himself, maybe a little bit of a shock jock, doing some scandalous things to get the attention of people. Um, Even throwing this party was extremely reckless. We know from historical context that most likely, the Babylonians knew that their kingdom was coming to an end. I could say the writing was on the wall, right? They knew it was coming to an end. So this is almost just like a a middle finger to the world saying, you know what? We're going to go down partying. We're just going to go and get drunk and just go down in flames. Kevin called in a preaching team, a hurricane party. I never heard that term before, um, like a lot of terms Kevin uses. I got it based on the context. And he doesn't get my, you know, terms either that I use. So contextually, we understand what he was saying. I guess it means if there's a hurricane coming, just, you know, hold up and let's have fun, right? See what happens. So he's kind of throwing this party which would have included not only the abuse of alcohol, most likely a lot of debauchery, illicit sexual acts, things like that. So this already would have been very scandalous, but he wants to take it a step further. He wants to show how much power and control he has over the gods, and so he adds sacrilege to the scandal. He does something that would have been shocking even by pagan standards. Pagan rulers didn't do this. He takes sacred vessels that were stolen from Jerusalem's temple years before when it was destroyed, most likely stored in a safe place, and he he calls for them to be brought out, and he uses them to drink more wine. And not only that, while they're doing that, he's praising false gods made of silver, gold, and all these things made by the hands of man. And it's at the height of this debauchery and revelry and rebellion that a man's hand appears and starts writing on the wall. We see the mention of the plaster on the wall and the king's lampstand. It kind of shows us this is probably in the throne room of the king, but it's also this detail that we would expect by a true eyewitness account. And we're told about the king's response of terror. He's not sure what to do, so he frantically shouts for the wise men to come. No surprise, if you've been following along with Daniel, they have no idea what to do. They're unable to interpret the writing or the dream, even with, not the dream, the writing, um, and give the interpretation of it. And so even with the promise of a great reward, they can't do it. And so then um, we get Daniel, who's called in. At this point, most likely had been forgotten about. This younger king probably came in, and just like even in our culture, when there's a new president, right, you get all the new positions in government, and there's a high turnover rate. Rarely people keep that position. Most likely that happened with Daniel. He probably just kind of hung out in the background, um, just kind of doing his thing. But similar to a story of Joseph that you might remember years before, Daniel is remembered and called back to involvement. Stephanie was in preaching team this week, and she was like, man, if that was me, I would have been like, I'm retired. Like, 
like, why are you calling me into this? Like, y'all do your thing. I'm 80, 81 years old. I ain't wanting to mess with this anymore. But he comes in and he's called in by this queen. She's the one who remembers him. The queen most likely was the queen mother of Belshazzar, still held the title, um, probably not Belshazzar's wife, probably her mom, uh, from what we can guess. Um, hearing all the commotion coming in, she kind of comes in as the wise you know, mother and calms him down, says, hey, there is somebody who can interpret the dream and calls Daniel in and he comes in. So Daniel says, hey, I'll interpret the dream, but I want to make a couple things clear before I get to the interpretation. He spends most of the passages, Daniel talking. And so before he even gets to the interpretation, he makes a couple things clear. First of all, he is not motivated by any earthly reward that the king might give him. This is following in a long line of the prophets who always made clear, true prophets made clear that their allegiance was to God's word alone. That was the only thing that motivated them, that they weren't here to just tickle the ears of the people or tell them what they want to hear. I'm not motivated by those things. I am motivated by what God says. And this is a good reminder for us about what should motivate us in our life. Allegiance to God and his truth is more important than any comforts, securities, or positions that the world might offer us as a trade-off for backing down on what God has to say. Secondly, Daniel sets the context for the prophecy of judgment that's about to come. Lest anyone think that the decree from God in the form of the writing on the wall was harsh, Daniel gives some background. He says, hey bro, like you knew the story of your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, yet you refused to learn from it. You ignored it. You pretended that it wasn't true, that it didn't exist. And again, this is a reminder for us to learn from those who have gone before us. And the stories of those that we have watched rebel against God, the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, have no problem reminding the people of God to recall former days when men and women rejected God and faced his judgment and they do this as a warning to us about the holiness and righteousness of God. But Belshazzar was only concerned for his own power, his own pleasure, and so of course he ignores it. And then you have good old Daniel, confident in a God that he's experienced personally down through the years. In the midst of exiles, his kings have come and gone. He responds beautifully and boldly to this king. He holds them to account and he tells them clearly the interpretation of the dream. Mini, mini, Tikel and Parson. This was essentially a riddle that alluded to different Babylonian weights, most likely. So Mini, Tikel, which was the Aramaic form of a shekel, and Parsons, which were two half shekels. This has to do with division. You can see this in the interpretation. So Mini meant to be numbered. Tekel, Tikel, which meant to be weighed, and Perez, which was the singular form of Parson. So you might wonder why those are different if you're like me. You're like, why are those different? So Parson was the plural form. Perez was the singular form, and that had to do with division. And so the wordplay of Perez also alluded to the giving of the kingdom over to the empire of Persia. You can even see that in English a little bit. It's more clear in the Hebrew. Um, not that I read Hebrew, but smart people that I read said that, so... Cool. Um, all of the predictions, though, take place almost immediately, right? All these predictions that the kingdom would be divided, that uh, Belshazzar was weighed in the balance and found wanting, as is said traditionally, or um, deficient, I think is what it says in our text. 
So all of these predictions take place almost immediately. Belshazzar, after getting the interpretation, he honors his word and he gives Daniel all the things that Daniel said he was going to refuse. He doesn't seem to make a big deal about it, probably because he's like, hey, this is all a show. This kingdom is going down in flames tonight. Um, so no big deal. Like I'm the third highest ruler in a kingdom that's being destroyed in a few hours, right? And so he's just like, whatever. Um, later that night, the kingdom of Babylon is overthrown and we're told that Darius the Mede is given the kingdom by God, the one who raises up and tears down kings and kingdoms as he so chooses. We'll get to spend some more time looking at Darius next week um, with Daniel in the lion's den. But for our purposes, we're focusing here on Belshazzar and Daniel. It's significant that through the raising up and tearing down of multiple kings and kingdoms, because there would have been kings in between even Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll see Darius raised up, that through it all, Daniel is taken care of by a sovereign and faithful God who watches over his people with a steadfast love that never ceases. And this can be encouraging for us in a world that talks a lot about this being the biggest election of our lifetime, or maybe you hear that the world's falling apart and these are the most important issues of the day, and I'm not saying we shouldn't care about those things and be faithful citizens and Christians, but presidents will come and go. As we've been reminded this week, kings and queens may pass off the scene. Countries may disappear and rise up, but God's kingdom and his word will remain. And it is the one constant that through it all, through the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of life, we can count on it through the course of our life. Within the biblical story, this moment of Babylon's destruction overlaps quite a bit with other significant stories recorded in the larger narrative. It had been prophesied and it also later is, is showing a bigger picture of Babylon as an evil in Revelation that's ultimately destroyed. But here in this historical context, this overthrow would set in motion a chain of events that would lead to King Cyrus of Persia, who was co-ruler with Darius, he would eventually allow, not too long after this story happened, a remnant of the people of God to return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding what had been torn down by Nebuchadnezzar years before, rebuilding the temple wall in the story. The very vessels we read of in our story today are told, we're told that they're counted and returned back to the rebuilding of the temple where the people would lay the foundation for the temple to be rebuilt. You can read about some of these stories in Ezra, Nehemiah, and the prophet Haggai. And even through exile, God will see to it that his people are cared for and that the remnant of his people will eventually lead to a thriving, flourishing, blossoming community. And we see it prophesied in the biblical narrative often. There's flourishing that's prophesied of. And so you would think reading this story that that means that, that this story that we read today will lead to building this new, physical, beautiful temple again. But it's interesting because when you read about it and you read about these, these vessels from the house of God in our story today, I'm reminded of the temple that Israel was called to build. You had vessels consecrated and set apart. You had priests sacrificing animals. You had a throne room called the holiest of holies. And this was all built not to display man's power and glory, but to display God's. And the people of God understood this. And so they wanted to return to build a physical temple. This is what King Cyrus allowed them to do later. But it's interesting because when you get to the book of Ezra and, and that, even though in our Bibles, it's before Daniel, chronologically, it's after 
the book of Daniel, we read that this foundation for this new physical temple is laid. And there's a bunch of young men who never saw the previous temple. They're, they're, they're super excited. Like we got the foundation laid, right? Uh, some of you guys, if you ever drive by like a house that's, got a, that's a new build, right? They're building some homes in our neighborhood and you see the foundation laid. That's a big moment, right? You kind of see the floor plan. You start to see the layout. This is happening. So these young men are like super excited. They're celebrating and shouting and rejoicing. Big moment. And then the old men were told are weeping tears. Because they're looking at this foundation and they're like scratching their heads like, this is nothing compared to the glory of the former. They're saying like, this, isn't, this doesn't compare what's going on. But then if you look at Haggai 2, you see this encouragement to these people. Look at what God says. For the Lord of armies says this, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. So we're looking at this foundation and God's prophesying this, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house, no matter what it looks like on the ground, it will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I want you to see what's going on here. Belshazzar puts together this feast and this celebration, the biggest one that he could do in his throne room, the place of power and might, the place that you couldn't just walk in. That's why everybody comes in and says, even the queen came in and she said something about the king, you know, that, that phrase of honor, I can't remember what it is. But he had the power to destroy anyone he wanted. He mocks the one true God by drinking from the temple vessels praising false gods of gold and silver. This is an anti-type, an upside-down foreshadowing of what God's plan has always been, which is to provide a dwelling place for he and his people to feast together. In the verses we just read, in the stories we just heard, it's clear, very clear, that it was never about the rebuilding, ultimately, the rebuilding of a physical temple. And it was never ultimately about reclaiming these physical vessels and these physical victories. It's always been about actual humans as the vessels, dwelling with God as the true temple through his spirit. See, when God speaks of a final glory, there's no way he was talking about a physical temple because that same temple was built up and destroyed again and it would happen as a cycle. He's talking about something greater than just a physical place. As we read this story today of a false, weak, earthly king, it causes us to long for and look for a true, strong, just king who will not only function as a king, but also as the perfect consecrated vessel who dwells among men as a true temple, the dwelling place of God, who will also willingly be sacrificed to redeem and sanctify sinners who repent and believe the gospel. See, our text today speaks clearly of God's judgment on those that rebel against him. You can't get around it in the physical, I mean, in the scriptural narrative. And here's the news that we all need to hear, even if it's uncomfortable. At the end of the day, all of our days are numbered. None of us are invincible. 
I love sports. I like watching sports. And I was watching um, Serena Williams' last match um, in the U.S. Open and just watching like her giving her best efforts. And they were amazing to watch, like amazing tennis player and the way she changed the sport. But father time is undefeated. Right, like watching Kobe Bryant's last game and you just see him like hobbling and okay, he put up 60 and that's great. He gave everything he had. But eventually time catches us all. All of our days are numbered. And when our life is put on the balance scales next to the blazing and perfectly righteous holiness of God, we're all weighed and found wanting. Even our best attempts at righteousness, the scriptures tell us they're they're filthy racks compared to God's set-apartness, his perfection, his holiness. And all of the little earthly kingdoms we built, I mean, they even pale in comparison to Babylon, this great earthly kingdom, but we think they're something. We build these little, little earthly kingdoms and these facades that we've created that mask our own weakness and frailty, And no matter how glorious it might seem here on earth, no matter the number of followers, no matter the amount of influence we have, in the face of God, it is all torn down, divided, and destroyed. And we're like the the, the weak, scared man in the Wizard of Oz, you know? Just like spinning the knobs and trying to convince the whole world that we really are powerful, trying to convince ourselves that we really are enough, we're really in control. But then life hits, And if we're honest, the writing is on the wall and we're all found wanting. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul goes on to say that the, the law and the entire Old Testament system, the temples and the vessels and the consecrated priest, all of it exists so that every mouth may be stopped And the whole world would be revealed to be guilty before God. And to get to the cure, to get to the good news, we have to walk through the disease. We have to have the the disease of sin in our hearts exposed and opened up so it can be dealt with. But the story doesn't end there. Because yes, we are all found wanting, but God chose to bring the temple down to us, to come himself in the person of Christ on a rescue mission, to somehow deal with the sin and rebellion without destroying the humans that he created. He deals with the sin not by destroying us, but by transforming us, by ripping out a heart of of rebellion and disease and darkness and sin and replacing it with the heart of flesh that somehow for some reason sees God as glorious and magnificent, allows us to have eyes to really see. In the incarnation of Christ, he's referred to as the, the true temple. Jesus himself said that I'm, I'm the true temple. I'm the place that you can experience God. I'm the holiest of holies come down to dwell with sinners. And he, as a perfect human, his vessel is fully consecrated to the Father's, the Master's use. Whatever you need, not my will, but thine be done. He's the perfect priest who can intercede for sinners. And you want to talk about a sacrilege and scandalous act? As sinful men revel in their execution of Jesus on the cross, 
This isn't just a gold or silver vessel defiled. This is Jesus himself, the perfect instrument and vessel of God, defiled, ashamed, stripped naked, mocked, placed on a cross as the sacrifice for the world. But through the cross, his blood makes a way for us all to be healed of the disease of sin. And yes, we're honest that the writing on the wall of judgment is is bad news for rebels. But the writing of the blood of Jesus on the cross stands on display as good news for those who find their hope in Christ. That's why we see when Christ is hanging there, what do we see? We see the veil of the temple just ripped in two when Jesus dies. This this throne room, the, the holy of holies where no one could even enter because of the glory of God is, is ripped open and, and allowed to be sent out, bursting forth to the whole earth. And when Jesus gets back up from the grave, he is stamping out the powers of darkness. And just like the overthrow of Babylon seemed to happen in an instant, the overthrow of all sin and evil was stamped out when Jesus rose again on the third day. And so the invitation for you and me, whether it's for the first time or the millionth, is to quit seeking false idols and earthly power and control and turn to Christ as our only hope. He is the way to God. And through Jesus, we are welcomed in. Those of us that in the presence of a holy God should be absolutely eviscerated and destroyed. Somehow, like we should stand in trembling before the God of the universe. And somehow he says, you're my sons and my daughters. Like, come, I'll gather you around like a mother would gather her chickens. Like, like, we're going to just be together. And you're invited into that because of Christ, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of the writing on the wall that everything says you should face the wrath of God, but you get instead loved with the same love that God loves his own son. Crazy. Instead of a proclamation of condemnation written on the wall, We have his new covenant of mercy written on our hearts. That's what Hebrews said he was going to do. I'm going to write it on their hearts. Can't take that away. And the great thing about this King Jesus, what I love about this, unlike Belshazzar, who throws this feast and invites only the nobles, only the prestigious, only the smart ones, Jesus opens wide his throne room for all. You can be the worst, the most beat up by life, the most downtrodden, the stupidest, the most foolish by worldly standards. And through the work of Christ, you can approach the throne of God, the maker of the universe with boldness and say, I got a need and I need help. I need grace. I need mercy. Hurt my hand. Belshazzar was called out by Daniel. And I love this line. He refused to acknowledge the very God who held his life breath in his hand and who controlled the whole course of his life. And to Belshazzar, 
This would have been terrifying and should have been terrifying. But the beauty of the gospel is that the same message that is terrifying to those who reject Christ becomes marvelously comforting. He holds your life breath in his hand, the whole course of your life. And we know that we can trust this Jesus because he gave up his life breath so you could truly live. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And for those who trust in Christ, just as sure as the writing on the wall of judgment was for Belshazzar, so is the writing of God's mercy and grace on your hearts that he has redeemed you. The whole book of Hebrews explores this concept. God is a consuming fire and there is a warning of rebellion against him. But I love that the Hebrews writer says, don't shrink back, but, but you are not of those who shrink back. We are sure of this. We can enter God's presence with assurance because of the work of Christ. Hebrews 12, 18. Look at these comparisons. For you have not come, this is us, we have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. This is the old covenant, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This is old covenant. But now look, instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Look at this description, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits, this has come to you, of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. This is what Christ has done. And we simply look with awe and amazement and it transforms our hearts. The writer of Hebrews goes on to implore us as God's people to lean into each other, to lean into a local tangible body of believers that lives this out. And yes, it's messy, but it's a means of grace that God has granted you to allow you to persevere until the end. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. Those that are truly his will persevere to the end. But this isn't passive. We don't just sit back and say, oh, ho, hum. We lean in, we press in, we engage because I need to be reminded every single day that it is not about me, that it is about Christ alone and that my dependence is not on earthly stuff, but rather on him. Because if we really taste of God's grace, if we really understand the judgment that we all deserve from the righteous, just judge, but instead we received mercy. If we get that, we would never even want to find out where God's patience ends. As we regularly gather 
as the writer of Hebrews exhorts us to do, I love this, we are experiencing foretaste of what's to come. As we come to the table and feast on the bread and the juice, which should be wine, but whatever, we're in the South. So anyways, there is a feast that awaits us, much bigger than that of King Belshazzar's, with heck of a lot better wine to drink. We'll all be pure motivations, right hearts, all God's people in attendance, no matter your earthly status. And the whole of heaven and earth, the vision we see in Revelation, it's all the throne room. It's called the new Jerusalem. The glory of the latter temple truly will outshine that of the first. And in that final day of judgment, that's promised for us all. If you have trusted in Christ alone, then the God who holds your very life breath, who controls the whole course of your life, he will see to it that you are judged not on the basis of your insufficient, filthy rags, but instead on the basis of his son, Christ alone. And you will be celebrated and welcomed into his presence. The writing on the wall will be one of joy, not of fear. Because the God who is our judge is also the one who pleads for us. Meaning, God has numbered your days and invited you into his kingdom. And when you've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you've no less days to sing his praise than when you first begun. Tikal, you have been weighed on the balance based on the righteousness of Christ, clothed and arrayed with his glory, radiant like a precious jewel, pure and bright like the noonday sun. No more sin. Pires, the goodness and glory of your temporal divided earthly kingdoms. Somehow by God's grace, the, the minute day-by-day things you are involved in, it will be brought into the eternal final kingdom of God and you will reign with him forever and ever. This is all as sure as done because of the work of Jesus. The writing truly is on the wall.